Have you ever wondered, as you look at the world and all, and you wonder, what is this world, you know, coming to? And I, I think we say that and we think that in a lot of different ways. And one of the wonderful things about the book of Revelation, and then specifically here in chapter 20, is that we get an answer to that. The book of Revelation is a great book for a lot of reasons, but one of the great things about it is that we are told history in advance. Now, that's a tremendous advantage to have in life is to know how everything ends, where this thing is going and all, and that allows us to have peace while we're on the ride, on the journey. Some of you might wish she'd give you the lottery numbers in here, but as valuable as something like that, you know, might be in terms of monetary or whatever, what is accomplished in our lives by the Holy Spirit, by knowing as we're in the midst of kind of a crazy world, always been crazy, but to know how all of this ends, that peace is very, very priceless. Nothing's in doubt about what's going to happen in this world. And here in chapter 20, he continues to tell us. You notice the first word of chapter 20 is the word then. He's continuing now chronologically from chapter 19. And since we've been away from it, maybe a little review would help us. Chapter 19 gave us, John declared, the rejoicing that occurs in heaven over the destruction of commercial and uh, religious Babylon. And then it went on to speak about the marriage supper of the Lamb during the great tribulation period, the second coming of Jesus complete with the battle of Armageddon, and then the Antichrist and the false prophet being thrown into the eternal lake of fire. So these are sequential events that are occurring, and now he continues that in chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. This is what he sees now, an angel coming down from heaven. This angel has a couple of things in his possession, having a key, the key, to the bottomless pit, talking about, you know, the uh, Hades, talking about Sheol. So he has the key to the bottomless pit. He also has a great chain in his hand. And so John doesn't know. We know. We read verse 2. We know what he's going to do with it. But John sees him coming with these, these two things and wonders what in the world he's going to do with that. And we are told in verse 2, he lays hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So he sees this angel coming down. The angel lays hold of the devil. And you notice that there in verse 2, there are four different names that are used for the devil. Uh, you think you just would say, laid hold of the devil. But the Holy Spirit uses four different names for the devil in the passage, and all of them communicate something different about the devil. He's called the dragon, and that speaks of his cruelty, speaks of his viciousness and, and the danger that he is to everyone. He's called the serpent of old, and that takes us back to the Garden of Eden, the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where the devil came with great subtlety to Eve. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that he was more subtle than all of, of the other animals. He's very subtle. He never comes on the scene and says, hi, I'm the devil, and uh, if you give me five minutes, I'll destroy your life. He always hides the fact that he's a dragon. 
He always keeps that hidden away, but he never ceases to be a dragon. He's very, very careful about how he presents himself. He's called the devil, and the word devil, it comes from the word diablos. That means an accuser. So the devil is the accuser of the brethren we've already seen in the book of Revelation. That's what he does. He has a special skill about accusing people and condemning people, especially accusing and condemning Christians. Now, thankfully, we have a great defense attorney in the person of Jesus Christ, and his accusations can never stick because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He is also, one of his names is Satan. That name literally speaks of him as an adversary, so he is always you know, fighting against us. We're in a warfare. Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, Peter wrote in one of his epistles. And so it's kind of an encapsulation of what the devil is and what the devil has been all through human history. So he's been all of those things for thousands of years, but now for a thousand years, all that's going to be put to a stop. In the history of the world, there's going to be a thousand-year break from his lies, from his cruelty, from his condemnation, from his accusations and slander and all of these things, the temptations. It's all going to come to a stop for a thousand years. Now, notice that the angel that arrests Satan at this time is just a regular angel, an angel. That's about as anonymous as you can get. He doesn't say, you know, the mightiest and the greatest seraphim came down and it was a terrible battle, but he finally got, you know, the rope and the chains around the devil and was able to cast him into Hades. That's not what it was. doesn't talk about some seraphim or cherubim or an angel who has one foot upon the sea and one foot upon the land and an angel who stands, you know, in the sun as we've seen some of these majestic, amazing angels that have been described in the book of Revelation. Revelation. This is just an angel. This is Barney the angel. This is Bob the angel. And he comes on the scene. Just a buck private comes on the scene. And when God is done using Satan in the way that God chooses to use him, and it's time for him to be bound, there's no big fight. There's no big struggle. There isn't like he's got to bring in a SWAT team or something to bring the situation under control. Just a plain old angel can come on the scene, bind him up, and cast him into the bottomless pit. It gives us, I think, which is important, an idea of the great distance that exists between God and the devil in terms of power. God is not marginally greater than the devil. God is infinitely greater than the devil. There's no big struggle that's going on. God isn't in therapy or he isn't taking any medications or anything anxious about the devil. The devil is a created being, and uh, just like we are created beings, there's an infinite gulf between the creator and the creation. And we give the devil his due in the sense that we recognize that he is very dangerous, he is very subtle, he is out to destroy us, all of those things are true, and we're not to bring a railing accusation against him. He is greater than I am tonight apart from Christ and that you are in terms of just pure creation in our fallenness. He is no match for God. And when God wants him chained up, a buck private angel can chain him when God says it's time. And that's exactly what happens there. That's our God.
That's the God that we're serving. That's the God that we have aligned ourselves with. There's nothing to fear related to the devil in his future and his place against us. We're in very, very good hands with the Lord. Isn't it wonderful to, in any kind of spiritual warfare, any kind of, and sometimes it can come, you know, just an overt blast of temptation, or sometimes it can just be this depression or melancholy or just all kinds of ways that the devil can come against us, and to just be able to cry out to the Lord in his name and to begin to speak of him and meditate upon him and, and all and ask him to break whatever it is that's happening around us and just let his spirit be at work around us and how faithful God is to do that. Notice that in verse 2 that he is bound, Satan is, for a thousand years. Now, this has got to be a special chain. This isn't a chain that you get at Ace Hardware because, boy, that'd be a bestseller. I'd buy stock on that. This chain can hold the devil, you know, for a thousand years. Everybody would make jewelry out of it or something. But this chain has the ability to chain and to hold a spirit being, an angelic being. So there's something kind of supernatural. It's different from what we know. It's kind of evidently kind of unique to heaven there because of its ability to bind an angel, to bind this spirit. The phrase a thousand years... As it's used there in verse 2, it's used six times in the chapter, and it's very, very important to understand a little bit about all of, of that. As we're going to see in verse 6 a little more fully, but I'll just kind of read it through at that time. I'll explain it right now. This thousand-year period refers to when Jesus is going to return to the earth at his second coming, as the Bible teaches, and he will set up what's called the kingdom age on the earth that will last 4,000 years. What we're waiting for right now as Christians is the rapture of the church prior to the great tribulation or the tribulation period. Following the rapture of the church, there is a seven-year tribulation period. At the end of that, Jesus makes his second coming and defeats his enemies at the Battle of Armageddon. He then establishes his kingdom upon the earth for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, as we'll see tonight, a rebellion is led against God once more. There's this thousand-year reign, and then at the end of the thousand-year reign, there's a white throne judgment, and then God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Sometimes people can wonder, and I think I certainly did, why this thousand-year reign? Why not just come at his second coming, battle of Armageddon, wipe out his enemies, establish a new heaven and a new earth? I understand why he needs to create a new heaven and a new earth. This one has been defiled by sin. And he doesn't want to be dealing with sin and all that. He's a better designer than that in terms of what he wants to be our portion and his portion really forever and ever. So he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. This is going to dissolve with a fervent heat. But why the thousand years? And I think one of the reasons for the thousand-year reign, when he reigns upon the earth, it's going to be a time of perfect peace during that thousand years. There's not going to be any wars. There's not going to be any law enforcement. There's not going to be any famine. There's not going to be any crime. There's not going to be any corruption. There aren't going to be any elections. There's not going to be any kind of things like we know the earth to be today. No oppression, no taking advantage of people. He is going to rule here, and every decision is going to be righteous, and people are going to obey his righteous decisions. And I think for a thousand years, man Mankind is going to be able to see what this, the potential of this world under the control of just someone who is leading in righteousness. There'll be no hunger. Nobody will go hungry. 
Nobody's going to die. No locks on the doors. None of this kind of thing. You think about the incredible resources that go into weaponry, armaments, law enforcement, all of these things every day, and the oppression of the powerful and the powerless all around the world, and everyone wanting their piece of the pie, and all of these things that happen and nationally, internationally, and even within a, a neighborhood and all. All that's going to be gone. We're going to see that this world was able to do much, much more than man ever realized that it could do. And the problem wasn't, you know, the proper allocation of this or that or all of these things. It was all along an issue of someone being in control in this world where the supreme issue in the decision-making is what is right and what is wrong in this decision that I need to make and then a person who will always make the right decision, and then to watch what this world has the potential to do, even in its fallenness, as a blessing to mankind. The beauty of what's built into this, this world, this creation by the Creator. Now, there are some people that look at this thousand-year reign of Christ and all, and they don't believe that Jesus is going to return and establish a thousand-year kingdom. That doesn't fit their theology. I don't understand it. It's listed a thousand years six times in the chapter. Very clear what it is there in verse 6. I can't change other people's minds, but I want you to be protected related to that. Additionally, I do not understand the teaching of some, and not just some, but many, many Christians, Christians who believe that we are currently in the millennium. We are currently in the thousand-year reign of Christ. Isn't it great? <laughs> if Satan is bound, as the old saying goes, his chain is too long. And, uh, or that angel's got to go back to not school and uh, learn how to bind an angel properly. And, oh, no, we're not in the middle of the millennium. They spiritualize the thousand-year reign of Christ. It doesn't mean a thousand years. It's symbolic for, for something else. No, it isn't. Isaiah speaks in Isaiah chapter 11 of what the world is going to be like during the millennium. See if you recognize any of this around the world. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. Now, we know that that is possible today, but the lamb will be inside of the wolf. But this is talking about something a little bit different. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. You can imagine. Get out! Come on, you're driving me crazy. Go outside and play with the wolves, and there would be no danger to it. The cow and the bear shall graze. That'll be very interesting out there. And the young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den, and there'll be no danger. So, no, clearly we're not in the thousand-year or the millennial reign or the kingdom age. They all mean the same thing of Christ. Now notice in verse 3, when this angel cast the devil into the bottomless pit, he shuts him up in there and he sets a seal on him. It's very interesting. I want you to note, circle at least in your mind, if not in, in your Bible, that word seal, because it's the same Greek word that is used for seal in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, where we read this. 
In him, that is in Jesus, speaking to us as Christians, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, you notice here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 3, Satan has no power to break that seal. He has no power against this seal, to interrupt it in any way. God's seal is God's seal. He's powerless in the face of it. And in the same sense, he is powerless against to break the seal that God has placed upon our lives for heaven by the Holy Spirit. So praise the Lord for that. Now the reason that he is sealed up, we're told there in verse 3, is so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years are finished. And after the thousand years, he is going to be released for a little while. You'll notice there at the end of verse 3, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. When he leads a final rebellion on the earth against God, it is not because he escapes. It doesn't say, but after these things, he'll escape for a little while. He would never get out except that he is released, and he is released by God for a very specific purpose, which we'll talk to about when we get there. Now, in verse 4, John begins to, he continues on by speaking about the first resurrection. He said, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. So John now sees these thrones and people uh, sitting on these thrones, judgment being committed to them. I am inclined personally to believe that this refers to the 24 elders that we spoke about there in uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. And as I said back there in chapter 4, I personally convinced that these 24 elders represent the church, the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. They seem to be a combination of Old Testament saints, New Testament saints. Perhaps it's the 12 apostles filling and sitting upon 12 of the thrones and then maybe 12 others, each one representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament representing the Old Testament saints. Now, all of this is very, very consistent with what Jesus spoke to the 12 disciples in Luke chapter 22. He said to them, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one on me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember when the apostles Paul spoke to the church at Corinth, they're suing one another, Christians in court and all. And he rebukes them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he said, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Now, Jesus is going to be the judge of men and of angels during the kingdom age. 
we will judge in the sense that we're identified with him and then we will be involved in the enforcement of his judgments. When the Bible says that we will serve with him and rule and reign with him during that thousand years, it means he will make judgments, he will make decisions, and it will be our blessed portion then to obey those and enforce those judgments in the little place in the world that he puts each one of us. Jesus is going to rule during the thousand-year reign from Jerusalem, and he comes at his second coming, and he steps down on the Mount of Olives, makes an entry then, a truly triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem, and then he will sit on the throne of his glory there. We will then rule and reign with him. Remember in Luke chapter 19, there is the parable of the ten minas, and uh, Jesus spoke about the master, the nobleman who went into a far country to receive a kingdom and return. He's speaking of himself in doing that, going to heaven, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants together, and he gave each one of them ten minas. And when the master, the nobleman, returned, the one who had been given ten came back and said, look, with this ten, I've earned ten more. And the master said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll make you a master over many things. And declared to him that he would be over ten cities. And then one had the ten minas, and, and he had earned five with the ten. And the master said to him, you also will be over five cities. So based upon our faithfulness to God's call upon our lives, that will determine kind of the sphere of influence that we have and the responsibility that God gives us during the kingdom age. Now, don't think that someone has to do what God has called me to do behind a pulpit and teaching the Word of God like that necessarily to hear these kinds of things from God and then to have a prominent place, you know, in terms of, you know, where God puts you and serving Him and ruling during with Him during the kingdom age, a mother who is faithful in the raising of her children and the Lord and the Father and all, all these things. As long as we're faithful to the Lord and whatever it is that he has called us to, then that's going to determine that level of responsibility that we'll have. Remember Jesus, he spoke to the overcomers at the church of Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2, verse 25, and he said, but hold fast what you have until I come, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, I will give him power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessels shall be broken to pieces, as I also have received from my Father. Now you think to you, someone might think to themselves, well, if Jesus is going to rule here for a thousand years in uh, perfect righteousness, I mean, every decision is going to be a right decision and a holy decision, then why in the world would there be a need to enforce obedience to his commandments during that thousand years? Because the population of the world during the kingdom age, that we will have our new bodies at that time. The population of the world during the kingdom age is going to be made up of men and women who have survived the great tribulation. They've rejected the Antichrist. They refused to take the mark of the peace. They didn't join in the persecution against the Jews during the great tribulation. 
And we're told that during the thousand-year reign that life expectancy is going to increase dramatically for human beings, so much so that if you were to die at 100 years old, it would be like a child dying. Isaiah puts it like this in Isaiah chapter 65. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be a curse. So during this time, if someone dies at 100 years of age, it'll be like, wow, they died so young because people are intended during this period they will live the entire thousand year reign of Christ. So these people that go then into the thousand year reign, the kingdom age on the earth, uh, they're going to have, wow, talk about childbearing years. Uh, so marriage will go on. These are institutions of God and all. So they'll have children all through the kingdom age. A lot of people are going to be born during that thousand years who do not necessarily have a commitment to Christ. And they still have a sinful nature and they still will be prone to rebellion. Now notice there in verse 4 he sees the souls of the martyred tribulation saints. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so those people that come to know the Lord during the great tribulation period, they will die for their faith because of their refusal to take the mark of the beast. It speaks of them being beheaded because of this. And interesting that that would be reintroduced as a means of mass killing during the tribulation period. And so they've been faithful to the Lord, faithful unto death, and their reward will be to rule and to reign and to serve Christ during that thousand year also. But the rest of the dead, verse 5, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And this talks about the wicked dead. They are in Hades. There's no resurrection for them at this point. They stay there. We'll talk more about that in uh, verse 11. He declares that this is the first resurrection. Now, the first resurrection does not refer to a single event. The second resurrection does. The first resurrection includes all of the righteous from Jesus until the start of the millennium or the kingdom age. The first resurrection began with Jesus' resurrection. He is the first fruits of the first resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first resurrection includes the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. Remember in Matthew chapter 27, following Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we're told in verse 52 that the graves were opened up, speaking of the Old Testament saints, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep or died were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. It also includes this resurrection. Every single person that has trusted in Christ for their salvation from 
the time of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, all the way through the church age. It includes all of us that know him in this room. It also includes the tribulation saints, those who trusted in the Lord after the rapture of the church and did so during the great tribulation. And there is a 1,000-year separation between the first resurrection of the godly saints and then the resurrection of the wicked. Notice in verse 6 that John declares that we're blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. The first resurrection, it is blessed to be a part of the first resurrection. We are blessed to be a part of the first resurrection because of our faith in Christ. Holy, it's holy to be a part. Those that are a part of the first resurrection, that's their character, the holiness. And the blessing of being a part of the first resurrection, he says there in verse 6, is that the second death has no power over us. What is the second death? The second death is the judgment that follows the first death, a physical death. And the worst thing that a Christian can experience in this life is a physical death. And even that is to go right into the presence of the Lord. But we will never face a second death or a judgment or an eternal death following that physical death. Now, I'm hoping for the rapture tonight, and we'll bypass the whole kit and caboodle on that. But no Christian is going to ever face eternal judgment. Instead, he tells us that we're going to be priests of God and of Christ. We're going to have the privilege of performing spiritual service to the Lord during the kingdom age. So how in the world do I become a part of the first resurrection? It's very, very simple, by trusting in Jesus as my Savior. And then I am not in any danger of facing a future judgment for my sins. Now notice in verse 7, John now goes on to speak of a final rebellion that the devil is going to lead against God. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Now notice that he's released. Very, very clear on that. Doesn't say that he overpowers the angelic guards and makes a break for it and that kind of thing. Nothing of the sort happens. He is released by God. God is completely in control of the situation. Notice what he does the moment he is released from prison. This guy's incurable. He's just incurable. And he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, to battle against God. And the number that are going to follow him in this battle will be as the sand of the sea. They're going to go up on the breadth of the earth. They're going to come from all over around the world. They're going to surround the cap of the saints and the beloved cities, the beloved city, which is a reference to Jerusalem. They're going to come from all over the world in a rebellion against Jesus Christ, against his righteous reign, against all that are aligned with him, and back us into Jerusalem and then think somehow they're going to wipe us out and, you know, throw off this righteous right and definitions of right and wrong and the Word of God and these things and, and retake the earth for their purposes. 
So he comes out and he tempts people, convinces people once again, you can fight against God and uh, we can whip them this time. I know a thousand years ago it was a little bad, but I, I think we were a little weak on our flank. But I got a better idea this time. We'll surround the city. And I mean, we'll get them this time. And people fall for it. They're, gonna, they're going to, you know, try and take on God again. Now, we can look at this and say, well, who in the world are these people? I mean, how, what... How stupid, you know, excuse me, but I mean, how, where do you find these stupid people to do this kind of a thing? Same place you find them really today until we come to know the Lord, we're all in that place. The people that join Satan in his rebellion here are those that have been born on the earth during the kingdom age. They've known nothing but perfect righteousness, nothing but perfect rightness, plenty, peace, Goodness. I mean, life is as a person who has any nobility in them at all, just as a person would long for life to be. Life could not have been better than what they had experienced for a thousand years. But because Jesus rules during that thousand years, he's intolerant of rebellion, intolerant of sin and those things. He rules with a rod of iron, we're told, in Psalm 2. And because for that thousand years, no one has had a real chance to rebel against his righteous rule, he gives them a window of opportunity to think that they can. Now they're given that chance to show whether they really do love the Lord Jesus, they want to follow in his ways and that thing, or whether they're just being forced into place and in line. And if the first opportunity they get to rebel against him, they would fall away from him and throw off his yoke if they were given a chance. And in doing so, these, as they join the devil in his rebellion against Christ, they're revealing their own heart, the wickedness of their own heart, and the absence of their commitment to the Lord, revealing that they've never truly been born again at all. You'd think that Satan would get loosed and come to the earth and to begin to deceive the earth again, and you think the whole world would go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. We heard about you, buckaroo. I mean, you just destroy and you murder and you lie and you kill and you slander and you've done nothing but wrong for thousands of years in human history. There's no way we're following you. Mm-mm, no way. That's not going to get any traction anywhere. And the exact opposite happens. A group that cannot be numbered, like the numbers of sand in the sea, follow him in this rebellion against the Lord. Our love for God is only meaningful if there's the capacity of choice. If we have the freedom to follow him out of our own desire to do so and our own love for him, or we have the choice not to do that. That's what makes my decision to love him and to walk with him and obey him precious and valuable to him. That's why he didn't make us robots. That's why he allows the devil to be released one more time. He doesn't want anyone with him for eternity that's there just saying, boy, they sure tricked me into this. I don't want anything to do with this, but you know, he's kind of got all the power, and so I just keep my mouth shut around here. He doesn't want any, anything like that. I remember our girls when they were growing up, 
A couple times they had those little dolls where you pull the string, you know, and they say nice things to the person that's pulling the string. Now I don't even know what they do. Probably robots that swing from the rafters or something with the technology and all. But you'd pull that string and say, you know, I love you, mommy, you know. And for a little girl, I mean, that's pretty special, you know. For me, it's like, it's a toy. <laughs> they programmed it to do that, you know. If I ever get weepy over a doll saying, I love you to me, then get me into some, give me some help or something. Give me a sabbatical or something. But because a toy has no choice but to say that. It's just programmed to do that. So it's not a, a meaningful kind of love. Our love is meaningful to God because there are all those options out there to not walk with God opposed to walking with him. I think it's one of the interesting things about the United States of America. People sometimes look and say, you know, you, you American Christians, they don't really say it this way, but it's, it's intimated. I'll tell you, if you got out on the mission field out here, it's really hard. And I'll tell you, that's, you guys got it so soft and so easy. And, and out here, you know, we got to walk 100 miles and we listen to 60-hour sermons and don't even blink or get sore or anything like that. And if they give us a, a handful of rice for lunch, you know, we're all happy. And all, and all of us feel, oh, man, I'm, just, I'm a nothing weasel, you know. And, and Christians that walk faithfully with the Lord in those environments... That's wonderful, and God will reward that, and that blesses his heart. But the United States of America is a very, very interesting place to walk faithfully to, with the Lord because we have so many options. We have so many options to the Lord, so many other things that we could be doing. And when we make a choice to say no to all of that, to say yes to God, it means a lot to him. It means a lot to him. It means a lot to a father that way. Here is this chance now for their hearts to be tested on whether they really love the Lord or they don't love the Lord and all. The devil now provides the universe, provides the earth, that millennial population with a choice of following God or not following God. Now, don't mistake this battle involving Gog and Magog, as they're mentioned there in verse 8, with the battle in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. They're two entirely different battles, and there's a lot of reasons why. For example, that invasion in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, it centers around, you know, Russia or a superpower to the north of Israel, the uttermost parts of the north, very, very specific Middle Eastern Islam-dominated country that come against Israel here. It is very, very clear that people are coming from all over the world to join the devil in this rebellion. Those two battles are separated by a thousand years. So they come in and they lay siege, as we're told there in verse 9, to Jerusalem. They surround the camp. We're the saints. We're there with Jesus, the beloved city, Jerusalem. All of this is going on, and it's just you know, a mess in terms of how far they go in their rebellion. Again, the kingdom age, pure prosperity, no crime, no victims, no prisons, no wars, no police, no hunger, no disease, perfect peace, and yet there will be some who will rebel against the Lord the first chance that they get. You know what that reveals? The depravity of man's heart. There's that classic argument that goes on today as everybody tries to figure out 
where men and women are kind of goofed up? Is it heredity or is it environment? And it can be both, but it is never, ever purely environment. Here is these people. You couldn't have had a better environment that they were in for a thousand years, and they still rebel against it. And it reveals the wickedness of the human heart. It's not environment alone. It's hereditary. It reveals us to be a descendant of Adam and Eve from that garden so long ago. The Bible, say, the Bible teaches that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Every one of us, when we're born in this world, we're born sinners. Nobody had to teach you to sin, did they? Did you ever have a class? Anybody have a class on that? I mean, nobody had, if any of you have to teach your children how to throw a temper tantrum, those of you who had children. Now, listen, here's what I want you to do. It's going to be a very crowded store. And uh, I'll know half of the people in the store. And you go over the candy counter, and then you demand a Chunky or Heath Bar or a Tootsie Roll or whatever. I'm going to say no to you. That should infuriate you. Throw yourself on the ground, start to scream at the top of your lungs, kick your hands and feet in the air until you turn beet red and say terrible things to me as your mother. You don't have to teach them. They do that all by themselves, and then you give them the old applied psychology, don't you? Whoop their bottom and make them think twice about doing that again. In the Lord, in love and all, I'm not saying to beat, beat children and all, but... So I'm not going to tie up all the loose ends on that. Just don't misunderstand me related to that. Why don't we have to be taught to sin? Because we're born sinners. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. He said, for by one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, many were made sinners. And so also by one man's obedience, many shall be made righteous. You cannot change the human heart through a change in environment alone. And that's one of the great mistakes that people make today. We have a lot of money. We have a lot of power and wealth in the United States of America. So we have a lot of ability to try a lot of experiments and to think we can change the wickedness of a human heart. The Bible says that our hearts are deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, Jeremiah chapter 17. And we think, all right, if we can just change people's environments, then they will change by virtue of that environment. Now, there are bad environments that people ought to get out of, but that alone will never change a human heart. The human heart, because it is desperately wicked, and it is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately wicked, what has to happen is that heart needs to be changed by a spiritual birth. And that's why when Jesus comes into our hearts, he takes and gives us a brand new heart. And that's why for us as Christians, it's important for us to stay on message at this time in human history. And the message is we need our hearts to be changed. Make sure we understand what the core problem is and what the symptoms are. And the symptoms are many, and we can try and address them until we die and the next generation comes into place and gets suckered into the same thing. What really changes a human life is when God comes into a heart and gives us a new heart, and then now the heart is changed, and then he'll start to change the environment because those are symptom kind of issues. Now, sometimes people look at this rebellion at the end of the thousand-year reign, and they think, oh, no, you know, uh, I, and we know how weak we are apart from the Lord, don't we? 
you know, I hope I don't get suckered into this and the devil comes and here I've been ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years and then he's going to come in and he might catch me at a bad moment and I'll jump in on this thing and then I'll be... Not going to happen. Not going to happen. We'll be in our new bodies at that time. We'll be temptation-free in all of that. Remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when Paul wrote about the rapture of the church and he closes all of it out by saying, and thus we shall always be with the Lord and therefore comfort one another with these words. That this temptation will not trouble us at all. We will be with Jesus. Now notice what happens there at the end of verse 9 related to this rebellion. They come against the saints, they surround it, and they surround the beloved city, Jesus ruling there. And it's almost humorous, again, how easily the whole rebellion is put down. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That's all. That's how easy it is. Sand of the sea, weapons, the whole thing and all. There's no big battle. There's no burning tires in the middle of the street. There's no house-to-house, block-to-block, you know, to retake the world and all. It's just fire comes down from heaven and devours them. I just like it. I'm just feeling it on things. That's the final rebellion of man against God. And that's how easily... He puts it down. And then notice what happens to the devil after all this. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Remember, a thousand years ago, earlier, they had been thrown into Gehenna, into the eternal lake of fire. They are still there. There is no annihilation in that, you know, the judgment of the eternal lake of fire. So he then joins them. They've been there a thousand years. He becomes the third participant in the eternal lake of fire, and they will be tormented. Satan will not rule hell. He will not rule hell. He is a participant in the eternal lake of fire, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Notice that tormented in that day and night forever and ever. They will not be annihilated, you know, burn up in an instant, and that's the end of it. There is no annihilation after death, and so many teach that. I think the Seventh-day Adventists teach it and, and others because the thought of an eternal judgment is, is so horrific to so many that they'll start to work things a little bit in all. And sometimes unbelievers or even Christians can scoff at the idea of anyone or anything being preserved in fire. How can these three beings, one angelic, two human, be in the midst of a fire and have it burn day and night forever and ever and not be consumed? But the Lord has authority over fire. And he can make fire burn some things and not burn other things. It's not unprecedented in biblical history. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel when they were thrown into the fiery furnace because they would not bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's image? They survived in the fire. But a burning did occur. The ropes that bound them when they were thrown in, those were burnt off. 
God has control over fire. God is the creator. He can do things with fire you and I can't do. It's a mystery. I don't know how all of it works. I don't know exactly what this fire is going to be like. I just know it's going to be miserable, unspeakably miserable, and horrific, and that it will go on forever and ever, and a person will not be consumed in the midst of it. And this brings an end of the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth and a complete end to man's rebellion against God.